kind of an interesting time of year, isn't it? Like that we're in the in-between time. Like this week is really weird because you may have realized Friday was a holiday. No surprise that Friday being Christmas. And we were saying yesterday around our place that uh, it was Christmas Eve service. It felt like Sunday. And then it was supposed to be Monday, but it really wasn't Monday on Friday. It was really like Saturday on Friday. And I woke up Saturday, and it felt like Sunday and Tuesday all at the same time. And I honestly woke up this morning. I'm like, now what day is it? Oh, I have to work today. It's a really interesting time of year, and particularly this between Christmas and New Year's time, because you're probably like us. Things are a little chaotic leading up to and through Christmas. Like, for instance, maybe you redecorated your house. Maybe you moved the pulpit from your church for Christmas Eve, and you forgot to bring it back between Friday and Sunday. And so I I might be doing this a lot, but we'll figure it out. Um, So anyway, but, but that's the same with our house. You know, there's Boxes of wrapping paper and boxes broken down. The recycling bin is is overflowing with all those things. Uh, We like to sort of disguise what we're giving. So you get a little gift in a really big box. Or uh, maybe you put some towels or or, uh, different heavy things in it to disguise it. So, you know, kind of have that period of time where everything's just chaotic. And, And now you're trying to make that transition because as you look back and you see the house is sort of decorated and you've got to undecorate it, And as you think about the new year coming, you begin to try to think, how can I make goals? Some people call them resolutions for the new year. I'm sure you're going to have some. And all of that to me is is sort of a process, as I think about it, of trying to regain a little bit of control in my life. You know, maybe it's because if you're like me over the holidays, you indulged in certain of your favorite things. Foods. Maybe your house has been filled with your favorite Christmas goodies, candies, or cookies, and desserts. And maybe uh, these last few weeks you've taken full advantage of that. And so now you're thinking, with the new year, I need to get a little bit more control and get back to a routine. Maybe uh, the control has to do with, with finances, as the, the pressure of the season mounted. And you found finally that perfect gift that you've been looking for. Only it's December 23rd, and there's only one way to get it here, and that's overnight shipping. Thank you, Roy. And you paid more in shipping than you paid for the gift. But it's okay because you have a credit card that you just typed in, and it'll be fine. And now it's the new year, and you've got some resolutions. You've got some control to gain over all the things that have gone out of control. There are lots of ways that our lives sort of escalate and, and spin even further out. And, and so a lot of the, the emphasis in the new year is very much, what, what can I do to sort of get some order out of the chaos? How can I make things move forward in a positive way? And so I want to talk about that today and look at one of the people in the Christmas story. I know for the last few weeks before Christmas, we really didn't look at the Christmas story itself, but one of the people that I want to look at today, you might consider, I guess, the villain of the Christmas story, and that would be good old King Herod. 
when you think about Christmas, when you think about all of the leading up to it, we spend a lot of time in that all is calm, all is bright sort of mood, right? That the, the, the beauty of the season, the beauty of the picture we have in our mind of that manger of Mary and Joseph, of the shepherds, of the, the wise men, all of those things that happen. We have these very specific ways that we, we kind of focus on. We have the decorations of candles and different things. But, but what we miss in, in all of that sometimes is, well, the grittiness of what Christmas really was and whether it is the fact that those shepherds that are so beautifully crafted out of porcelain or whatever kind of manger scene you have were actually pretty stinky, smelly, dirty people or whether it's the fact that Mary and Joseph in that manger laying a newborn baby is what no mother ever would want to do with her child if given the option, hey, let's have my birth in a hospital or in a cattle stall. Hmm, really not a hard choice. We, we miss some of that. And on the heels of that comes probably the ugliest part of the whole story. The part that in many ways we can't even imagine would have happened. But history records that it did. The scriptures tell us that Herod did something unthinkable. And we'll get to that in just a minute. The account of, of Herod's actions and some of the things that led up to it is found in Matthew chapter 2. And, and it centers around the visit of those magi, those three wise men, as we often call them, even though we are not sure how many there actually were, probably not three. I, I tend to think, as others have said, that these wise men were of some substance, we might say. They were wealthy, they were powerful in their in their area because of the gifts they brought, the gold, the frankincense and myrrh, very expensive, valuable gifts. These weren't people that probably traveled lightly, most likely a caravan, maybe attendants that went with that caravan that took care of all of their needs. It was not a simple thing to get from point A to point B. It was a big production. The other thing that, that you've probably heard um, that kind of blows our Christmas story away is they didn't show up that first night. It wasn't, here come the shepherds and here come the wise men right behind them. It was probably sometime later. And they didn't most likely come to that manger, but seems to be by the time they got there, Mary and Joseph and Jesus were already in some sort of a residence in the area. So a lot of those things that are about the this part of the Christmas story, I don't want to blow your, you know, don't go home and like blow up the manger scene. That'd be bad. Not a way that, but, but you know, it's just interesting to look at that. But but the, the account in Matthew's gospel in chapter 2, verse 1 says this. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time, and here's our good fellow, of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, listen to their question, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Notice what they asked. They said, Where is the one who has been born? born king of the Jews. They asked this question to somebody who had not been born king of the Jews. In fact, they were asking this to a person who Rome had appointed as the leader of that area. He was under the authority of somebody else. He was also not Jewish, though 
he had some influence in the area, and it sort of upset, you would imagine, those of Jewish descent that a non-Jewish person was ruling over their area, as had happened often in their history. But Herod hears this question, and it can't sit well with a guy who had spent most of his life trying to consolidate and protect and preserve his power and influence. He was an, an incredible king, actually, a quite a remarkable individual. One of the things that we know a lot about him is his uh, ability to, to build. He built some remarkable things in that area, uh, the Herodian, for instance. He built some aqueducts, some other things in that that region. He was well known as a very savvy builder and left that as a legacy. Probably, as most people do, to somehow remind people of them. I, I can think of one individual that likes to build things and put his name on it, but no date. Huge, but nonetheless. Okay, moving on. Back to Herod. Herod would build these things. He, he thought of these as ways to make sure that he left his mark in the area. And to do that, to be confronted now by these other people, probably of substance, probably of power, coming to the palace. After all, if you're going to find someone who's been born king, where do you go? The king's house probably going to happen there. Herod gets this question, and verse 3 tells us this. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. The first part makes sense. We just talked about that. We just said that this king, who wasn't born king, who was appointed king, who was under the Roman authority, would not like the fact that somebody else was born king. But the fact that he was disturbed is one thing. For the scriptures to say all Jerusalem with him is quite another. Why might that be the case? Well, Herod, hmm, how could you describe Herod? There's a lot of ways. Let's just say he was fiercely protective of his rulers. He had several wives. In fact, at one point he actually killed his favorite wife. I don't know how that worked out necessarily, but that's what happened. He killed several of his children. He killed those who were supposedly next in line, and when he did that, he had to rewrite his will to say, okay, you're no longer going to succeed me as king, but this child of mine will, and he would rewrite the will. He was not good. He killed several of the rabbis, the religious leaders around the area. In fact, it was not the appointment you wanted, even though Jerusalem was where the temple was and was kind of the center of religious life and activity for Israel. No rabbi wanted to go to Jerusalem because that meant they were right there under Herod's watch. In fact, Herod, one of his building projects was to rebuild that temple that they worshipped at. And if you were there, one of the ways he showed control was at times to just get rid of any rabbis that seemed to disagree with him or come against him. And so nobody really wanted to be there. When Herod got disturbed, he usually took it out on some other folks. And so as Herod gets this message that there's one born king, he's not happy about it. And everybody is thinking this can't end well for us. Verse 4, when he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, there you go, some of them 
must have known that this was the guy who liked to kill their kind when they didn't give the right answer, when they didn't uh, somehow agree with Herod. He asked them where the Christ was to be born. Interesting the question he asked. The Magi come and they say there's one born king of the Jews. Herod's a smart guy. Herod lives in this area and rules over a people whose life revolves around their faith. And so he would learn the ins and outs of that very important aspect of the life of those people in Jerusalem. He would know some of their things, and most likely he knew the answer to this question. And one of the reasons I think that is because of the way Scripture records it, that as he gets the message, one born king, he interprets it through what he knows of the area and the region and the religion and asks of those leaders where the Christ was to be born. He put two and two together. He kind of understood what might be at work here. Verse 5, in Jerusalem, or excuse me, in Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child, and as soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. I don't think that's what he was up to. I don't think that was his idea. He's disturbed. All Jerusalem is disturbed with him. He is probably at this point in his life uh, nearing his death. In fact, we think probably within a few years he died after the events recorded in the Gospels. It wasn't that long after. He had a, a rather debilitating disease, a rather painful disease. And in these days of his life, he wants to make sure something of his legacy lives on. And he was not only quite the builder, he was not only quite the remarkably astute and smart person, he was an amazing political mind. In fact, I heard this story recently. I've never heard this about Herod. It sounds actually quite fascinating. Herod had designs that were much higher up the political ladder than just this backwoods town of Judea. He wanted more. And as a, a vassal of Rome, he tried to insert himself into their politics. Unfortunately, in his inserting himself into their politics, he decided apparently to back the wrong leader to be. You may have heard about Julius Caesar and that whole et tu brute thing. You remember that, right? Caesar's murdered. Um, next after him will be Gaius Octavius, who will become one day Emperor Augustus, but not right away. The Senate and those around Caesar that murder him, um, Gaius is away, he's coming back. He actually has a bit of an ally, and a guy by the name of Mark Antony, who you may have heard of his wife, Elizabeth Taylor, right? Oh, wait, I'm sorry. Cleopatra, that's it. And Herod cozied up to Anthony and Cleopatra. In fact, he would host parties for them. He would do he, When there was a rebellion around Egypt near Alexandria, he supported them in that rebellion to try to help them squash it down. And after uh, Augustus or Octavius and Anthony came together to 
rid the, the Roman Empire of those who rebelled against Caesar, things began to fall apart between them because there are two of them, but there's only one rule. And so each kind of marshaled their forces and got their part of the Roman army and found their allies. And Herod, as he'd always been, was a good friend of, of Mark Anthony, and so he allied with Anthony. Of course, I've already spoiled the end and told you that Gaius, Augustus, or Gaius Octavius becomes Caesar Augustus. He wins out in the end. Mark Anthony has to kind of go back to Egypt and stay away. And now Herod is in a spot because he has thrown his allegiance behind the losing person. What is he to do? This is not the day of, you know, let's just make nice and all that sort of thing. He, he expects that they're going to come after him. And so he can try to run, but most likely eventually they will find him. He can just sort of pretend like nothing happens and hope for the best. That's probably not a good plan either. Instead, he chooses option 47, which is this. He decides to locate where the newest emperor is and go pay him a personal visit. The guy that he has come against with his enemy, with his adversary, knowing that he is persona non grata to the emperor of Rome, he goes and knocks on his door and says, Hi, I'm here to see the emperor. Surprise, surprise. Doesn't seem like a good move. But the emperor, maybe curious, uh, maybe thinking, Okay, this is a good way to get rid of this guy, invites him in, and Herod makes his speech. And this is basically the substance of his speech. You know, I was a Genya. That's the southern version. I, I allied against you in the battle that you ultimately win. And you also know that when I allied myself with Mark Anthony, I was with him to the end. When I am loyal to somebody, I am loyal as long as it takes. You can count on me to the very end. And so you, Caesar, need to know, today I declare my loyalty to you. That's probably what he did. You know, just how did that go over? It went over well, actually. Augustus was apparently either impressed by his eloquence or amazed by his gall and let him live and sent him back to Judea with a few extra territories to rule over. This is the guy that's here in the biblical account of the birth of Christ, that these magi show up and say there's one born king and we want to worship him. And Herod now has to do what he's always done, try to preserve his legacy, try to somehow overcome this new obstacle so that he, or more likely his chosen successor, can sit on the throne and continue his rule and influence. How in the world am I going to do this? Well, first option, tell these guys, when you find them, come tell me so I can worship him. I'm sure he used air quotes. Now, that would have given it away. Did they have air quotes back in that day? I don't know if they did or not. He, he told them he wanted to worship them. Well, obviously we know that wasn't his case. Verse 9, after they had heard the king, they went on their way. And the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. And on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary. And they bowed down and worshipped him. That was the response of these people. I, I picture, and I think I've talked about this in other, uh, other Christmas seasons, the picture I have is pretty remarkable. We know 
that Joseph was pretty much a regular guy, a working-class carpenter fellow. We also know that the circumstances around Mary's pregnancy were suspect to most people and probably put them at odds, even though he you know, finally believed after the visit of the angel that what she said was true. I don't know that that sentiment spread everywhere. And so they're working-class people who have to travel to pay taxes, who get there and have this baby, and now are just going to try to make do for a while. I, I, the picture I have is, you know, Joseph's like, okay, let's go back to Nazareth. Oh, no, Joseph. I'm not getting back on that donkey. One more minute. You dropped me all the way down here nine months pregnant. I am not going back. Can, can you see that conversation? Is that just me? And so they find a place to live in that area, in, in, in Bethlehem. And it's probably nothing palatial. It's probably a very simple home, a very basic home, where he tries to do whatever he can to make some money. Remember, they came there to pay taxes, to be registered at the census. So it's not like they came there with pocketfuls of cash. And if they did, they probably had to give it up already. So they're just eking by, probably in just a very simple part. And Bethlehem is not a big place. It's not a massive city. It's a small little burg outside of the big city of Jerusalem, about five miles or so away. It's just this little place. And into this little town where this simple family is living in probably very simple conditions comes what I imagine was a pretty elaborate caravan down Main Street. The first Christmas parade. Camels and everything. Here we come. And knocking on their door. And in they come to this very simple family. These probably well-dressed people bearing what were ornate gifts, valuable gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And they walk into these people who have nothing that somehow make them seem important. And yet these very seemingly important people, it says, bow down to this baby and worship him. Now, worship is an interesting word shows up several times in this story. A lot of times in our mind, I think, when we say, hey, let's go to worship, you probably hear, let's go sing some songs. Because I think we've kind of conflated those two ideas in American Christian culture. Bands release worship albums. And usually on those worship albums are lots of songs, maybe some of the ones that you like. A lot of Christmas worship albums come out, whether it's Chris Tomlin or Paul Beloche or these sorts of things. And we, we put worship together with Oh, that means we're going to sing songs to God. But there's no sense that that's what happens here. And rather, the idea is these wise men, these magi, these influential, powerful men come and kneel before a baby who has nothing to commend them to them except for the star that they have seen. And they bow down and worship. They show reverence and awe in the presence of this one for who they believe him to be not because of anything that commends him to them. And that is what, in many ways, our, our worship should be. It should be informed bowing, we might say, before the one who we believe to be worthy of our allegiance, worthy of our worship. There's an old saying you may have heard that kind of talks about what, what does that look like to truly um, submit your life or worship Christ, and it goes something like this. God, the answer is yes. Now what's the question? You may have heard that idea. The idea is God is God, and 
Jesus is the Son of God, the Word that became flesh, and what He deserves is for us to do whatever it is He asks of us because He is that worthy. And our, our response to Him should be yes, no matter what, and even before we hear the question. And I think we have this fear if we do that. There's no telling when that might be true. If I really say yes to God before I know the question, you know what you have to give up? That thing all those resolutions are trying to get back. That thing Herod was so desperate to hang on to. You have to give up a bit of control. We have some control freaks here, do we? I mean, I'm just talking us. Do we have some control freaks here? That's all I meant. Not, not anywhere else. Now, I like to think that I can keep things in order. I like to think that no matter what happens, I can figure a way to sort of make it work out the way I hope or want it to. Anyone else? Anyone at all? Anyone really? Don't leave me hanging. Just, it just, like, you know, for Christmas, I knew what I wanted, so I ordered it. Put it under the tree, it said, from Denise. It was perfect. No, I didn't do that. Did anybody do that? For, no, you can't admit that on stage. That, that's actually not a bad idea now that I think about it. Look at what you got me. Of course, uh, Sinbad's a comedian. He talks about how one year he forgot his wife's anniversary, and that's what she did. She bought herself a car and said, look what you got me. He said, I never forgot her birthday again, or whatever it was, you know. So there's something to that. Um, anyway, we, we, we like control. We want to we wanna make sure that the outcome is what we want. Herod loved control, and and these wise men probably were used to living life when they were in control because of their wealth and power. And they come to a point where they see this child and they are willing to give up control, to recognize in him the one who rightfully controls their life, to whom rightfully they should submit in a physical way, to bow down before him to say, we are at your service. Herod wanted nothing of that. Herod was trying to control outcomes. Herod wanted a legacy. Herod wanted to be remembered. And so he took a different path. A few verses later, I believe it's about verse 16 if I'm not mistaken. What happens in the meantime is these wise men decide not to go tell Herod that they found the child. They go back by another way. And in verse 16, when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he doesn't take well to that either. He was furious. And here's the thing that he did, hoping to try to regain some control. You won't bring me the one child? I'm going to take them all out. He gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem in its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Here's what I'm going to do keep myself in control, to make sure this ends the way I want it to end, even though I thought I had my, my angle with these magi who came asking me for help, since they didn't turn out to help me the way I wanted, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use the nuclear option. Could you imagine the horror of that event? There was a movie a few years ago. We actually watch it every Christmas Eve. It's called The Nativity Story. I don't know if you've seen it. 
as well. Interesting. Here's the cool part. Well, not the cool part. The weird part. Apparently, Poe Dameron, the, the hotshot X-wing pilot in the new Star Wars, is also Joseph in the Nativity Story. So if you wouldn't watch it because it's called the Nativity Story, maybe you'll watch it because it has a Star Wars connection. I don't know. Anyway, that's how the movie begins, is with Herod giving the order to go and, and sort of a recreation of what that must have been like as the soldiers go into this small village of Bethlehem and pull children. And I'm guessing, because of the day and time, it's not like they knocked on the door and said, excuse me, you have a birth certificate for your child. Can you show us that he's older than two years old? Because if you can prove he's older than two years old, we'll let him live. I don't think they were that polite. I think if there was a child that looked anywhere near in the neighborhood of two years old, that child was dragged out or or killed on the spot. I'm sure if any parents tried to resist in that same way, they were dispensed with. It was a horrible, awful, unthinkable thing that happened. And it's right here connected to the Christmas story. Because Herod was like me. Imagine if one of Herod's advisors went to him back in the day and said, Herod, I've got good news for you. 2,000 years from now, all over the world, people are going to tell a story about you. Herod, in a couple thousand years, every year, people are going to gather in large assemblies and they're going to read and tell a story about something you did. Think we'd be happy about that? We'd probably wonder, I wonder what the story is like. Will they, will they tell them about the things that I built? Will they tell them about the temple in Jerusalem? Will they tell them about the Herodian fortress? Will they tell them about some of the engineering feats the aqueducts were accomplished? No, we won't talk about that. Will they tell them about my political savvy? Will they, will they tell the story of how... I nearly defied the Roman emperor. No, I don't think that's the story either. No, the story they're going to tell, in fact, isn't really your story. You're, you're like just a bit player in a bigger drama. You're a small part of something else. Your kingdom that you spent your whole life trying to build, and your legacy that you were so desperate to protect that you went to such unthinkable lengths, it's gone. didn't last. In fact, some of those great architectural feats, those buildings you you built, they're, they're also gone. And you just show up as an aside. And as an aside, you get outwitted by a baby. How's that sit with you, Herod? Do you like that outcome? Do you like that legacy? Do you like being just a bit player in a larger drama? 
some degree, probably trying to think about our legacy. Maybe it's in your family, valuable things, raising a family that you hope will be a, a godly family, raising children that will grow up to be moms and dads to, to godly boys and girls and that generational heritage. Good things. Maybe it's something else. Maybe it's in a, in a business endeavor. Maybe you own your own company or you're a key player in the company you're in and, and, and you have some, some dreams of that company becoming something of substance, making valuable contributions to, to the area or even to the economy or nationally. Nothing wrong with those things. Maybe you've got some personal goals. Maybe you've got some financial goals that you've set. Maybe you're hoping that that investment pays off and that you can be comfortable and maybe your family after you can be comfortable. We're all writing a story. We're all trying to leave behind a legacy. The question is, to some degree, who? Because just like Herod, one day whatever legacy I think I'm building will turn out to be a bit part in a much bigger production. And the story has always been God's story. For when he stepped out into the void that was nothingness and spoke the universe into existence, he's been at work bringing about his purposes and his plans and his ends. And somewhere along the line, I have to decide, am I going to be like Herod? Desperately trying to protect and preserve and push my legacy forward? Or am I going to be more like these magi who see that though I may be of some importance, though I may be of some wealth, though I may be of some power, ultimately all of that is secondary to someone else's. And my only response in the presence of that someone else is to do what they do. To bow. And to worship. I'm going to make some resolutions this new year. I'm not going to tell you what they are, so when I break them, you can't make fun of me. But I'm going to make some. I got some presents that will help me hopefully accomplish some of that. If I'm lucky. I've got some personal resolutions. I've got some resolutions for church world professionally, as we might say. And you know, most of them, if I boil it down, are really about trying to control or regain control or exert control in areas that before I either hadn't thought about or lost it. And when you make your resolutions, which I'm sure most of you will, whether formal or not, I hope you'll remember good old King Herod. Because I'm trying to remember him. I hope you'll remember a guy who thought that no matter what happened, he had the smarts and the savvy and the clout to make it work out. So that somehow he came out looking good. And I hope you'll remember where it ended for him. As for some working so hard and thinking maybe here we finally 
leg up. We finally found the angle. We finally found the answer. Only one day to learn it was just a bit part in somebody else's plan. The story of a God who so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him shall not Father, I thank you that we can learn of your love that caused you to enter into history in the person of Jesus. We thank you that you've preserved those accounts for us of how you lived a perfect life. That you lived out the kingdom of God in a way like nobody ever has or will. And that you willingly laid down your life as the sacrifice for sin. And that you rose from the grave on the third day victorious. And that you offer to us a relationship with you. And Lord, as we live our lives, and particularly as we look into a new year and think about those areas where we want to be better, more disciplined, to, to have a little more control over, Lord, that we'll remember we are not in control, no matter how much we think we are, no matter how much things might have worked out here or there in our favor. Father, we're just bit players in the drama that you're unfolding in history. And that our only response to the God who entered history is that of the Magi. To bow down and worship. To submit our plans to you. To submit our dreams to Submit our goals to you. And to say to you, Father, the answer is yes. Now what's the question? Where do you want us to go? How do you want us to live? What can we do for you? Lord, thank you that you are a God who is worthy to receive all the glory and honor and praise. And Lord, I pray as your people that we might go into this new year with that in mind. And with that desire to serve and worship you not just singing a few songs on a Sunday, not just when we come to church or Bible study, but every day, at every moment of every day, life with a heart bowed before the King.